Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Murder and Misery, our true crime podcast. We are your hosts, my name is Heather, and I know absolutely nothing about true crime. And my name is Jillian, and I consider myself somewhat of a true crime expert. Yes, Jill is our resident true crime expert. And we created this podcast so that Jill could teach me about all things true crime, both locally and nationally, and to take you guys along for the journey, so that if you too know nothing about true crime, you can learn something. Or maybe hear another perspective about stories you already know. Okay, so we do have a corrections corner from last week. Um, I was saying Benjamin Pietzel. Yeah. And it's Peitzel, I think, right? That, that's what we've been told. Peitzel. And we so, take the experts for their words, so. The expert was my cousin again. <laughs> so... <laughs> Okay, but she's the expert in this situation. Yes. So, so um, sorry about that. Also, this one is going to be um, interesting because I am severely on edge right now. Like, oh, this episode? Yeah, my adrenaline is like through the roof. Yeah, that's what happens when you don't sleep. No, I almost hit a deer on the way here. Did you really? You did not bring that up. I know. I, it was literally within like two feet of my car. I literally slammed wow, on my brakes. Wow, I'm such a bad friend. I literally, You literally got here and I was like... Shirley Temples. Well, it made it a lot better. <laughs> but yeah, so that's how my day started. I almost hit, or you know, actually, no, I didn't even tell you how my day started. I was 99% sure that I was going to be like um, the next episode of this podcast because this morning when I went to my parents' house, they were both gone and I walk in the door and their back door was wide open Oh. And that's never, that doesn't happen. Yeah. And so my like murder and misery, true crime podcast expertise like immediately kicked in and I got all the dogs into one area and like uh, I called, I called my neighbor or I called my parents' neighbor, Vanessa. Thank you, Vanessa. <laughs> I called her and I was like, hey, the back door is open. I'm going to case the house. I need you to be on the phone in case like something happens because you're going to get here quicker than the cops. And I was like, and I'm not, I literally said on the phone, I'm not going to be the next episode of our podcast. So, um, I would not know how to do what you do. So we each have our strengths. You don't know what I do and I don't know what you do. So the chances of me continuing this podcast after you get murdered are slim to none. Yeah. Actually, I didn't think about that. You would just be like, this is a case I've never heard of before. No, but I did. (laughs) So true, honestly. I've never heard of this one. (laughs) I did tell her that. And she's known me for 15 years, so she knows that I'm crazy. But she stayed with with me on the phone while I um, cut the corners in the house. Which, fun fact, my aunt's ex-boyfriend taught me how to... He was a police officer and a detective, and he taught me how to cut corners when I was a teenager. So I did that throughout the entire house to make sure nobody was there. Um, and yeah, so it's been an interesting day. It's been a very long day. And then I recently just bought Jill and I some different syrups to mix like in tea or lemonade. But Jill really likes Shirley Temples. So when I went to the grocery store, I got her some Sprite. And I bought her this giant bottle of grenadine syrup. 
And so she walked in the door and I did not ask her how her day was or how she was doing or anything. I immediately was like, do you want a Shirley Temple? Yes or no? Do you want ice? Yes or no? Do you like metal or plastic or... No, but that's what I Do you exactly... want a straw or not? That's exactly what I needed because it's just been a really long day, which I did find out that my mom did leave the door open. Why? She just forgot to close it, which oh. I know she listens to this podcast every week and you need to do better, Gina, and listen more. Gina, that's not safe. It's not, which has never happened before, but I think she was just running late and forgot to close it, which... Um, we'll give you grace because everybody makes mistakes sometimes, but you should be safer because you never know who could get in your backyard and into your door. I heard from a really great person one time that everybody has those days Oh my God. and everybody makes mistakes. And I know everyone knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. I'm over this. So let's go ahead and get into the case. So this case was requested by a longtime listener and a longtime family friend, uh, Char. So thank you for requesting this. But before we jump in, I do need to add that this case mentions kidnapping and a brutal child death. So listener discretion. I am so over this. Is advised, I know. Little did I know that this is not murder and misery. This is child abduction and child brutal death. Yeah. But this one, <laughs> I know I say this. I said I'm this. sorry. I'm not trying to harm on you. I just think it's funny that, like, there are so much crime. And here we are. All we talk about is children dying. It's yeah. A, it's depressing. Next week, I'll have, I'll, I have one lined up that's less bad. But I'm. Let's talk about adults. <laughs> and I know I say this a lot, but I'm. If you haven't heard of this case, I know you at least learned about the father of this child okay. in school. With I'm that telling being you, said, I don't learn about these people. Well, in school, we'll find out very okay. quickly because with this one, I'm going to do it a little bit different um, and start with the parents' backstory as it plays a pretty relevant part as to why this story gained the national attention like it did. Okay. So let's jump in. Charles Augustus Lindbergh. I've never heard that name in my life. Oh my. <laughs> no i'm telling you i'm just stupid i don't remember anything from school heather you're the smartest person i know besides my mom <laughs> okay charles Lindbergh. yeah i don't know who that the is the spirit of st louis the spirit of st louis the airplane yeah i didn't know his name okay well that <laughs> that but... makes sense that that would be his name yeah but okay. i didn't know that that was his name so you do know who he is well, no. Okay, but you've heard of the Spirit of St. Louis. I've heard of the Spirit of St. Louis, but I have not heard of Charles Lindbergh. I guess I probably should have. Well, he he was the one that uh, flew it, but he was born on February 4th of 1902 in Detroit, Michigan. Did you know that man's name by yes. heart? Yes. Really? Yeah. Like before. Okay, I just want to say that Charles Lindbergh is like every... He... <laughs> Has a big fan base in St. Louis, so much as they named, like, the longest street in the city after him, Lindbergh Avenue. But that's why I said that makes sense that that would be his name. Like, yeah. I under like, Lindbergh is definitely an important name in St. Louis. Right. But I didn't know that that was his name. I'm telling you, I'm just dumb. You <laughs> thought I was smart, but I'm not. No, you, Heather <laughs> is literally one of the smartest people I know. Um, That one... I think that one shocked me a little bit more than you never hearing about H.H. H. Holmes. So, sorry. wow. So That's sorry. okay. Um, but as we mentioned, he would go on to become a famous person. Um, on top of being an aviator, 
He was a military officer, an author, an activist, and an inventor. Do you think people are going to think I'm dumb because of that? No. You don't think? Honestly, though, you not knowing about him kind of makes me feel like a lot more people don't know about this story, which I guess I just kind of expected. I really expected everybody to know about this story, but that makes me feel better about doing it because now people are going to learn more stuff, you know? Like we've mentioned, he became an aviator when he grew up. On top of that, he was also a military officer, an author, an activist, and an inventor. And he would go on to become famous around the world at the age of 25 on May 20th through the 21st of 1927. This was when he flew by himself for the 33.5 hours nonstop from New York City to Paris. As many of you probably have read about him in school. I probably did. But about his plane being named the Spirit of St. Louis? Yeah. Yes. So um, that was his plane. And I already mentioned about the locals type of thing. But shortly after Charles claimed to fame flight on December 21st of 1927 in Mexico City, he would meet Anne Spencer Morrow. Uh, both of them came from very prominent families. Like Anne's father worked for J.P. Morgan and was like Charles's financial advisor. And they kind of like set them up, you know, type of situation. Gotcha. And uh, Charles's parents or his father was like... And the government, they were just, they came from very, very well-off families, but they were both very, like, established in their lives. Like, they got awards and did all sorts of things. But Anne was born on June 22nd of 1906 in Inglewood, New Jersey. She was a writer, and on May 27th of 1929, the two got married. A year after their marriage, Anne received her U.S. glider pilot license, making her the first woman in history to do so. Nice. Yeah, women empowerment. Love that for her. Huh? I said I love that for her. (laughs) Yeah, so on June 22nd of 1930 in Inglewood, New Jersey, they gave birth to their first child, a son named Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. Unfortunately, almost two years later, on March 1st of 1932, tragedy would strike. It was around 9 p.m. Anne and Charles Sr. were in their home downstairs, relaxing after putting Charles Jr. to sleep in his crib. His nursery was on the second floor. The two thought he was fast asleep until 10 p.m. when Charles Jr.'s nurse slash nanny, her name was Betty Gow, she arrived and found that Charles Jr. was not in his crib. Uh, She frantically ran downstairs to tell Anne and Charles Sr., and this was when Anne went into the room and saw that the window was open. She found a ransom note on the windowsill. The note read, quote, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we'll inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making any ding public or notify the police. The child is in gut care indication for all letters are signature and three holds end quote so i don't know what the last part meant but i will know read it one more time just the last part all letters all all letters are signature and three holds okay I i have no idea but um it is noted that many things are misspelled in the note for example they spelled police with a S and not a C, 
And they also spelled money, M-O-N-Y. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure. But it became apparent that the kidnapper or kidnappers... It's the cow from Chick-fil-A. Eat more chicken. (laughs) They always spell everything wrong. It became apparent that the kidnapper or kidnappers... I'll use those terms interchangeably because I don't know. Um, used a ladder to climb up on the second floor window. There was also muddy footprints in the nursery as well. The Lindberghs immediately notified their local police, who proceeded to pass this investigation over to the New Jersey State Police. New Jersey State? We were in New Jersey? Inglewood. Why did I think we were in St. Louis? Oh, because Spirit of St. Louis. Lindbergh Avenue. Okay. I mean, Avenue Boulevard. Lindbergh Boulevard. And then New Jersey State Police started the investigation. While searching the crime scene, aside from the muddy footprints and the ransom note, they found a broken ladder near the house and footprints leading from the house into the woods near the end of their property line. But other than that, police found nothing for days. While this was happening, word got out about the kidnapping as a result. They had so many clues that led to nothing and had many volunteers who were trying to help, but as a result, roomed the crime scene as well as any evidence there was. Still, no luck. Even the famous gangster Al Capone reached out to the family from prison to see if the Lindberghs wanted his help. I'm sure at a cost, though. Interesting. Right. Um, It was because Charles Sr. theorized that the kidnapping was related to the mob somehow. Mm. Um, And he, uh, Charles... I feel like mobsters are usually depicted as, like, very intelligent, like, well-educated people. So I don't know why he would assume it was someone from the mob if they couldn't spell, right? I don't know if it would. I I don't know. I initially thought it was children because you said they couldn't spell. Right. Well, I'm not sure if um, possibly they had ties with the mob. Maybe. Or anything like that. But this caused uh, Charles Sr. to basically lead the investigation himself. Oh. Right. Um. Because he was worried about the mob? No, I think it was just because he, not that he was worried about the mob, but I think he just wanted to, like, be in charge of everything. Oh. Um, I feel like maybe let the people who know how to do this job do their job. Well, you also have to think that he is military. Yeah. That's not a detective, though. No, but, I mean... I don't really know, honestly, how much detective work was going on back then because they just let random people on the crime scene. True. Good point. Good point. But five days after the kidnapping, another ransom note showed up in the mail. This time they went in $70,000 instead of the original $50,000. Did they even tell them where to take the $50,000? No, not at this point yet. Okay, so then you can't up your, your price. You didn't even give me an opportunity to give you the money you wanted. Right. And, well, they were just, they just kept changing oh, really? their minds. By this point, a retired Bronx principal, Dr. John F. Condon, hope I'm saying that right, right. Condone? Condon? I don't know. I think it's just Condon got involved. A third letter from the abductors received by the Lindberghs at their attorney's house said that no Im- intermediaries were to get involved. Dr. Condon wasn't having that and put an ad in the paper stating that if the kidnapper used him as a middleman, he would personally add an extra $1,000 to the ransom, which of course changed the abductor's mind as the fourth letter received by Dr. Condon said that they were pretty much cool with having him as a 
medium middleman type of person. Around March 10th, Dr. Condon got the $70,000 for the ransom and began the negotiations in the newspaper using the code JAFSI. I don't know how to say that. J-A-F-S-I-E. Okay. On March 10th, around 8.30 p.m., Dr. Condon got an anonymous phone call followed by a taxi driver named Joseph Perrone delivering the fifth ransom note. Joseph said that he got the note from a strange man that he didn't know, and this ransom note said that a sixth ransom note would be found under a stone at the at a vacant stand near the subway. This sixth note had a list of instructions that Dr. Condon would meet an anonymous, an anonymous man who called himself John at the Woodland Cemetery by 233rd Street and Jerome Avenue. This meeting would be where they would talk about the ransom money and how to do the payment and how all of that would work. This is when they said that they needed something of Charles Jr.'s to let them know that it was really them and not some random person trying to get money. Dr. Condon went with his bodyguard up until the meeting point, and this happened for a couple days until March 16th when the seventh ransom note and Charles' jumper that he was sleeping in was delivered. It was identified as Charles Jr.'s by his dad, and the eighth note given to Dr. Condon demanded compliance and said that they had been planning this abduction for a year. On March 29th, Betty Gao found Charles Jr.'s thumb guard, which was a, des- a device to keep babies from sucking their thumbs. This was near the entrance of the estate. She said that it was worn while Charles Jr. would have been abducted. The next day, on March 30th, Dr. Condon received the ninth note, which threatened to increase the ransom to $100,000. On March 1st, the tenth ransom note was given to Dr. Condon, and it told him to get the money ready for the next night. I'm confused. I thought they already gave him the money. No, they gave Dr. Condon the money. Like, well, why hasn't he given the kidnappers the money? Because they haven't, like, agreed upon it at this point and, like, said how it was going to go down type. I don't know. It, it, it seemed like they were just playing games. I know. I'm like, what is going on? There's a baby exactly. at risk here. Yeah. And th- the parents have literally already given you money. It's your job to get their baby back. Right. Well, it wasn't that the ransom people had the money yet, if that makes sense. Well, I know that they didn't get the money yet. Dr. Condon had it. But I don't understand why he wasn't like, where can I give you this money? Well, I'm sure it it doesn't really go into detail, but I'm sure he was, since he got the money, it said that he'd been trying to like, hey, like, take this, give us the baby. Weird. Yeah. They must not like money. Yes. Um, Sorry. No, it's fine. I just don't want to jump ahead. But the 11th note was delivered on April 2nd, again by a taxi driver this time an anonymous one, who said it was given to him by a stranger. Again, this note told Dr. Condon where to find the 12th and final ransom note, which happened to be under a stone in front of a greenhouse in Bronx, New York. It was then that a meeting was planned and the abductors agreed on the initial price of $50,000, which in today equates to $1,049,284.67. That's a lot of money. A lot. But, yeah. That guy saved him $20,000, though. True. I'm not sure how they, I mean, I don't know the details of yeah, how the they negotiated, yeah. which it's, he had the $70,000 originally, but I don't know. Um, But Dr. Conan gave the kidnappers uh, the money, 
And then the kidnappers gave him like a receipt that said where uh, Charles Jr. was. And it said that he was in Martha's Vineyard on a boat called Nellie. Once the search yet again began in Martha's Vineyard, they discovered that the boat was nowhere to be found. And neither was Charles Jr. How and, rude. Yeah. And finally, on May 12th of 1932, over two months after the abduction, the body of Charles Lindbergh Jr. was found by Williams Allen, who was working at the time and just saw it. Um, it was near the estate and it was found partially buried horribly decomposed and after further investigation they found that his head had been crushed parts of his body were missing and the body had allegedly been burned there was also a hole drilled into charles jr's skull what is wrong with people i have no idea it was found that he died of uh, blood of the head and it was found that uh, after the autopsy that Charles Jr. had been killed the night of his abduction. You're kidding me. Which I think plays into why they kept going back and forth because there, there was, they were planning it with no, with no serious outcome because he was already passed. So. That's awful. Right. During this time, the investigators were giving banks the serial numbers from the ransom money and having the newspapers publish them. And on May 13th, President Herbert Hoover let the FBI take over. I think there were some jurisdiction issues or something because why they didn't take over before and it had to have president's like grant or whatever, but don't take my word for that. On June 22nd of 1932, which would have been Charles Jr.'s second birthday, the U.S. Congress passed a federal kidnapping act referred to as the Lindbergh Law. This made kidnapping across state lines a federal crime punishable by death. Okay, first off, Kidnapping across state lines, not within state lines. I'm sorry. He literally was kidnapped in his own yard and then killed in his own yard. Right. It should still be a federal crime. I think it might have been like a state thing where, I don't know. I think that there was like issues with the FBI getting involved because it was a state level, not a a federal level. I know, but they, they still, in this case, did not cross state lines. So even if that law had been in place when... Charles Jr. was abducted, it would not have helped his family. No, but You know I, what I mean? So why did they name the law after them? Like, it literally has nothing to do with them. I see, there could be parts that, like, I just don't, I don't know. Um, okay, and maybe I'm overlooking something, but based on the knowledge I have inside my head, that does not make sense. If they never took him out of their property... You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know. And it might have, I don't know if it had anything to do with New Jersey and like New York being so close because some of the ransom letters like went into New York. I don't know if that had something to do with, I don't really know. I don't know either. But it. Sorry, I was just pointing something out that did not make sense. No, you're fine. It's not you that doesn't make sense. It's these other people. Well, I should have looked more into like why exactly they did but all we know now is that it is a federal crime punishable by death so don't do it and don't, don't kidnap and then take them to another state or you can kidnap kid- them inside their state don't kidnap people at all <laughs> but which maybe there's been another law since then about not kidnapping within a state yeah i don't know because punishable by death like most states don't even um yeah have the death penalty anymore but the fbi then focused on dr condon 
Charles Sr., Anne, and the House staff. But no leads came from this, obviously. They were not involved. Along with the national tension, especially from presidents, more than 200 people confessed to Charles Jr.'s murder, but not one of them was proven even slightly plausible. Wow. Again, don't understand why people would confess to stuff like that. Yeah, but with no leads, President Franklin Roosevelt issued an executive order that all gold certificates had to be exchanged for reserve notes by May 1st of 1993. Apparently, this was done to keep people from hoarding gold as it was during the Great Depression, but as a result, it helped investigators because it made the ransom money easier to track down. A year passed with nothing. This was until an attendant at a service station in New York City said a man had paid with a $10 gold certificate. They had thankfully written down the license plate number, and this man ended up being a German carpenter named Bruno Hauptmann. Bruno matched the physical description of John, who was the fake name of the abductor, who took the money. And on September 19th of 1934, Bruno was arrested, and on his person they found a $20 gold certificate that was part of the ransom money payment. This was when the most famous trial of the time started. The day after his arrest, over $13,000 in gold certificates that matched the ransoms were discovered in Bruno's garage. They also used handwriting samples and found that they were close to the ones that were written by the kidnapper. Dr. Condon also identified the man as the one who he gave the ransom money to. But Bruno also had a prior criminal background that included burglary. However, he said the money was not his and that he was holding it for a friend, which I feel like is an excuse that police hear all the time. But this friend, he said his name was Isidore Fischk, had went home to Germany in 1933 and had died since then. On October 8th. You're not holding it for a friend. Yeah, that, that doesn't, doesn't make really, any sense. No. He's not coming back. Right. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah, a lot of this really is confusing. Um, but that was the excuse that he gave. No, and, I know. I'm just saying sometimes these people's excuses make absolutely no sense. I think that happens a lot with drugs, too. Remember, I don't remember what story it was. I think it might have been, I think it was the Springfield 3. Where the guy was like, it couldn't have been me because I was at church. <laughs> and it was like the middle of the night. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, some of these excuses are just like, wait, what? And Fox News just put out an article about the Springfield 3. Really? Yeah. I, was I that, got excited. Was it that story? Yeah. Look at me go. Yeah, we're still waiting for that one guy's mom to pass away, so he... Yeah, so Says, he can no, he knows admit, what happens. Yeah, to yeah. What he knows. But on October 8th of 1934, Bruno was indicted for the murder of Charles Jr. And on January 2nd of 1935, a jury was selected. And the following day, on January 3rd, the trial began. There wasn't really any physical evidence. It was circumstantial. But there were some things, like the they had found tool marks that were on the ladder near the crime scene that they said were close or somewhat matched the ones that he had in his house. And there was also a piece of the ladder that looked like it had been taken from Bruno's attic. And finally, Dr. Condon's phone number was found on a closet door frame written down in Bruno's home. That that would be the one that would get me. The phone the number? Other, yeah, the other ones I'm a little bit confused about, but the phone number seems odd. Yeah. Um, how do you explain that away? I don't know, because he was a retired person. 
wasn't like he was like a doctor. Like, I mean, I know he was a doctor, but it wasn't like it was like a medical doctor that you would need the yeah. phone number of. Exactly. And not inside your closet. Right. Charles's father, Charles Sr., went on the stand and testified that he recognized Bruno's voice from when they called about the ransom payment. However, Bruno said he was innocent and that police beat him and forced him to write handwriting samples that matched the ransom notes. After five weeks and 11 hours of jury deliberation, Bruno Hauptmann was found guilty and sentenced to death. Appeals were tried and rejected, and Bruno was executed by electric chair on April 3rd of 1936. Till the end, Bruno rejected any involvement, and many believe his innocence, or at least believe that he did not act alone in this. After all of this, Charles Sr. and Anne donated their mansion to charity and moved away where they had five more children. Five more children? Wow. Yeah, and I gotta be completely honest. I I don't know if it's just because I, like, I never looked into this case. I just always heard it. Mm-hmm. But I was, like, 99.9999% sure this was a cold case and that they never found who did this. Really? So I don't know if it's because I only talked to people that believe that he was innocent or what, but I I don't remember ever hearing that somebody was tried and convicted of, of um, this is called the Baby Lindbergh kidnapping. I don't ever remember until I looked into it that. There was, like, an ending? Yeah. Weird. I literally went into this, like, this is a cold case. Yeah. And then I was like, they found this guy. Oh, but obviously he didn't do it. And then we're like, he got sentenced and tried and electrocuted. And I was like, what? <laughs> I don't know if I'm the only one that, if, I don't know. I just... I distinctly remember this being a cold case, so. I had never heard of it, so I don't know. Well, that really does surprise me, I'm not going to lie. No, that doesn't surprise me either, but I'm just saying, like, I I can't say whether or not I've heard it's a cold case because I've never heard of it, but um, if you guys have also heard that it's a cold case, let us know because that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Maybe, like, the the St. Louis area believes that that guy didn't do it or something. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. I know it's, like, weird that, like, Really, none of the story was here, but it is a really, um, I don't want to say there's a fan base. That's not right, the word. Well, I guess Charles Lindbergh himself, senior, does have, like, a fan base in the St. Louis area, you know? hmm But, yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was, like, weird. <laughs> and I, like, I was like, what? And then I, like, obviously used multiple sources, and every single one I clicked through, it was, like, this guy. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I didn't know. So, I learned something new in Perfect. this. Yeah. It's good for both of us. Right. Well, I'm really sad that Charles Jr. died. I do not understand people. I, I do not. I mean, it's kind of weird, though, right? Like, this guy had been charged for a burglary, but he it didn't seem like he had anything to do with stomping children's heads or drilling holes into them. Right. Or, like, taking body parts, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that does seem kind of weird. Yeah, and I'm not saying that he didn't do it. I'm just saying, like, that's kind of a weird jump for somebody to make. Right, and it there's a lot of theories on what happened. A lot of people seem to believe that either, A, they really had been planning it, like, this entire time, or, B, they did it, and then they got scared after they did it, mm-hmm. and that's why they just... That's what I figured. It's kind of weird... To me, it would be too long to plan something for a year because in a year, a lot of things change. Mm -hmm. 
So it would be odd to take a year to plan something because by the time you get to your plan date, half of what you planned for a year ago has changed. Mm -hmm. And so now you have to plan again. So it is. it would be weird to me if they truly did plan it for a year. Um, I think they probably just got scared and they were like, don't mess with us because we've thought through all the possibilities. Yeah. Because they clearly didn't because they were like, we don't want anyone in the middle. And they were like, okay, yeah, $1,000, that's a lot of money. We'll take you. You can be our negotiator. You know what I mean? Right. Which is also weird why that guy wanted to get involved. <laughs> he had nothing to do with it. But well, I thought that was kind of strange too. I didn't know if like he had experience with kidnapping he negotiations. He was a, a retired principal. That's right. Mm-hmm. Maybe his kid was kidnapped. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like something would have Maybe said something. Maybe his, like, but... nephew or something. I don't know. But you're right. He was a principal. I don't... The more you said Dr. Condon, the less I remembered he was a principal or yeah, a retired principal. Yeah, it sounded like he was an investigator halfway yeah. through it. So, yeah, 100%. So I was like, the more you talked about him, I was... I forgot that he was a principal. Yeah, there's really no reason for that guy to have his phone number then. No. And if his kid, like, went to school or whatever, he would have said that. And Right. And I don't I don't think he had any kids. It didn't mention any kids. But. Yeah, that's I, weird. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know if maybe. Did anybody look and see if his, like, quote unquote friend was even a real person? I guess. I don't know if this is, like, the technical date. But this was kind of, like, in the beginning of the Holocaust um, thing. So I don't know if maybe that played into a role because that guy would had went back to Germany that they couldn't really get there. I don't know. I don't know either. And I don't know. I mean, be, I guess. I don't know. I know that. Or it could be that he made him up. True. You know? Or it could be that he had nothing to do with it and that he was his roommate and that he was the reason that all that stuff was there. Maybe he didn't go back to Germany. Maybe he killed him. Oh, I was using it the other way. <laughs> that, um, that the friend was like a roommate and like had all that stuff there like the phone number and like taken the tools oh. and stuff like that because he was the one that did it and then when he left germany i don't know i feel like if it was his roommate they probably would have said it but kind of sounds like part of this was like botched because it did say it was like circumstantial i don't know um well i was thinking the guy who was convicted Maybe he was, like, more messed up than we realized. Because, like I was saying, it was a weird jump to go from being a burglar to a child killer. Right. In such a brutal manner, too. Yeah. Yeah. Then I was thinking maybe he actually was a scary person and he also killed his roommate and then said he went to Germany. That's a, that's possible. That's like A.J. Holmes. All these people went to They all went California. Yeah, they all moved to California. So this guy moved to Germany, but maybe he really didn't. See, it's just so weird to me because I really thought that this case was unsolved. And so, like, now, like, the ending, I'm just, like... You're confused? Yeah. I can see that on your face. Yeah, because, I like, I really had, like, always believed that this was still a cold case. And, like, I remember distinctly, like, whenever, like, DNA... Well, whenever we started talking more about DNA, I was like, wonder if there's any way to connect that to this. But now, I guess... I mean, I guess not. I don't know. Did you read any specific reasons why people don't believe that it was him? Um, mainly because, like, I guess they said that the trial was somewhat botched mm. and, like, biased. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, he was, like, an immigrant. Yeah. Um. Which is unfortunate. Right. And that there wasn't any 
this was the main one that I saw, um, was that nobody saw him going in or out of the window, which nobody saw anybody going in or out of the window. I was going to say. Yeah, so, but I think it was mainly because the case was based on circumstantial rather than true, like, evidence, evidence. Yeah, that makes sense. I was just curious because I didn't know if there was, like, a reason to believe that he didn't do it or if they just didn't feel like they had enough evidence to believe he did it. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. So I, I get that. Curious. I also think it's because he main not maintained. He claimed his innocence literally until the end. Until the end. Yeah. So I don't know if maybe that because honestly, I got to be completely honest. If you're sitting in a chair getting ready to be executed, there's no There's no reason, reason. to lie. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Which and people th- still do. But I know, but still, I don't know. I, I get that. I could see why they would question it at least, but. Yeah, so let us know your thoughts. We have gotten some new reviews on the podcast on Apple. Appreciate all of those. They're very sweet to read. Yes. One of them is my Aunt Ramona. Hi, Aunt Ramona. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, some that we don't know who they are. And yeah, like. That's the coolest thing ever. Like, we love obviously all of our friends and family that listen, but it's even cooler to like get messages from people we don't know um, saying like, oh my gosh, I just found your podcast. Like. It's so cool. And then Joel and I are like, wow. Wow, strangers. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Because, like, your mom has to tell you she likes your podcast. It's her job. True, true. (laughs) Like Joel said, please feel free to give us a review. I know you can review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also find our episodes on Google Podcasts and Stitcher. If you haven't already, please follow our Instagram, TikTok, Facebook pages. Do all the things. And... Please let us know if you've heard about this case and also if you also thought it was a cold case because I'm just interested to know if that's like a common thought. I don't know. And we will be back together next week with another episode. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.